This is a special event sponsored by the Asian Studies Center here at St. Anthony's College and by the Oxford India Society. Um, and I want to thank in particular Tanvir Alam uh, for making it um, possible. It's a great pleasure and privilege to have Mr. Salman Khurshid here with us. Um, I'm sure you know uh, uh, more about him than I can possibly tell you. But just by way of formality, you will know that he is um, uh, a member of the Congress party, uh, a very senior member, having held very senior positions, including Minister of External Affairs, Union Minister of External Affairs, Minister of Law and a Minority Affairs Minister, uh, a member of Parliament of Long Standing, now uh, uh, an advocate, uh, continuing his practice as an advocate uh, before the Supreme Court of India, uh, and the author of a number of books, most recently this one, uh, a rather lovely volume, um, a rather unlovely subject, mm -hmm. uh, Triple Talaq, um, which as I'm sure you know has been um, a subject of some contention uh, over many decades actually, but one that has just reached a kind of, uh, the controversy has reached a kind of crescendo in our own time. Uh, so Mr. Kushir will speak for about uh, half an hour, 45 minutes, yeah. and then we'll have Dr. Shruti Kapila uh, from the University of Cambridge, fellow of Corpus Christi College, uh, deliver a response of 10 odd minutes, 15 yeah, minutes, 10. and then we can open up for a general discussion. Um, good. Thank you. Good evening and thank you for being here. It's, uh, it's wonderful to be back in Oxford after many years and uh, uh, to be uh, in, in, uh, in a gathering such as yours, it's, it's, uh, brings, brings forth a lot of nostalgia and, and uh, poses, imposes a bit of a responsibility a sense of responsibility that uh, I'm speaking to perhaps a gathering of, of some of the finest minds that one can, one can uh, uh, put together. Um, I've been asked to, to really focus on uh, Indian politics, which is a subject in which you're, I imagine, interested, or many of you are working in that subject. Uh, although the focus was, was indicated to be on opposition politics, uh, I was, uh, it was suggested that I could make it somewhat broad-based, and I found a good compromise. And a good compromise is to describe Indian politics essentially as politics of opposition. Uh, that there is seemingly, uh, to put that thesis across to you, the, uh, uh, there is no real politics of, of government. There is no real politics of governance. Uh, whatever politics there are, whether you are in power or you are out of power, it's politics of opposition. I'm not a scholar of, of, of uh, political science and therefore I can't place uh, an appropriate sociological political label on it. Um, uh, I will therefore just be descriptive to show to you what my personal experience has been. I've been in public life now for over two decades. Uh, what my personal experience has been and how that experience um, is reflected in uh, or reflects what I see happen around, around me. Uh, I've been uh, as a member of the UPA2 government. 
I was indeed inducted into a government that was at a high point of an outreach in good governance in the country. And that's what we were told. We had a remarkable set of, of uh, legislations. We had introduced schemes that were far-reaching. We <coughs> talked about uh, virtually putting together a welfare state in the country. We were, doing, we were going to do an extensive scheme on health care. Uh, we, we were doing an extensive scheme in right to education, <coughs> providing free and quality education. Uh, we were providing housing. We were upgrading city, uh, cities through a, a special, special program. Uh, we, we were talking about uh, and had introduced right to information so that the entitlement of an ordinary citizen uh, went far beyond what constitutional provisions merely held out uh, would be would be the uh, the manner in which the gov government would be run and the gov country would be governed. Uh, we had, uh, uh, in fact, at, at a high point, reached the level of saying that we would give 70 percent or 72 percent of the Indian population subsidized food. And that was the right to food. So we had the right to education, we had the right to information, we had the right to health, right, right to food. And uh, the idea then really was that we would have a country in which we would substantially, substantially be able to satisfy the basic needs of every citizen and to ensure that everybody in the marketplace had the strength, had the ability, the capacity, and the opportunity to compete as equals. There was one thing that when I came into government in, in uh, UPA2, uh, one thing that I was extremely excited about, and as Minister of Minority Affairs and then subsequently as Minister of Law, I tried very hard to push, is something that I failed to push. And therein lies one of the problems I believe we are faced with in India today. There was a remarkable proposal called the Equal Opportunity Commission. And I know that some of you here have even read about it, written about it. The Equal Opportunity Commission I saw, I saw as the next generation uh, instrument of entitlement and equality. The instrument of equality that we have used since independence has been the instrument of reservation. That we've identified social groups very categorically social groups that for historical reasons have been disadvantaged and backwards and therefore we've provided to them a special opportunity to move forward. And there have been, there have been a huge number of, of uh, complaints and conflicts and, and contradictions and, and, and some, some, uh, uh, some reservations about reservations themselves. And you know the, uh, the time when, uh, when the young people in, in the country had exploded against, against the, the problem of equity not being given to everyone. So merit, they said, suffers because people without merit get, get reservations and opportunity. But our philosophical answer was that don't see things at the surface someone who you seem you see as being non-meritorious is not actually non-meritorious it's a person who has hasn't had the same educational opportunities to grow 
as other people have had, and therefore we need to compensate and we need to fill the gaps in that person's life. But that's, a, that's a, an area, area that I will not touch right now because I think it's a, it's a full week or a full month's work to talk about reservations and the problems that reservations throw up. The idea of uh, Equal Opportunities Commission was to take away all the problems of reservations and give a truly inclusive platform and how the Equal Opportunities Commission was to work was to look at the entire social data and collect social data in one place and have a commission in one place instead of 12 specific commissions that we have in the country. There is a commission for scheduled castes and scheduled tribes, there's a commission for backward castes and communities or backward classes and communities. There's a, there is a uh, there, there is a commission for something called the denotified tribes, there is a commission for women, there's a commission for children, there's a commission for, uh, for about 12 separate, separate segments of society. We were not going to abolish them, they would remain, but an overarching commission called the Commission for Equal Opportunity that would also have participants from <coughs> these 12 commissions would be set up. They would have mega data about society, about opportunities that people have in different segments, in housing, for instance, in education, in, uh, uh, in, in, in the job sector. America, United States of America and the UK, uh, the focus is largely on discrimination in the job sector and equal opportunity that you now combine here in this country with the Race Relations Commission <coughs> would be the model. Uh, that would be the model uh, for India as well. And what the Equal Opportunity Commission would do is that it would not, it would not use reservation or a quota system, but would provide an incentive and disincentive for any sector to include, to provide greater inclusion to people who have remained excluded. It could be the media, uh, the sector of media, it could be uh, the sector of, of, of films, it could be the sector of housing, it could be the sector of jobs. The idea there was where would, where in any particular part there is lack on the data, there's a lack of participation and inclusion of any subset of society. By incentives and disincentives, they would be encouraged and included. So no one would say that this quota system is depriving me of opportunity entirely. And nobody would say that the quota system is an inadequate because I'm not included in the quota system. And nobody then would say that the quota system is perpetuating a permanent reverse discrimination that is causing injustice to me, etc., etc. Unfortunately, everybody and all of my colleagues in government felt that that was going to be disastrous. I do believe that that would have been a remarkable new beginning of social justice in our, in our country. The problem that people felt particularly was because there was no specific divide between public sector and private sector. Reservations, as you know, are in public sector only. Some people are now beginning to ask for reservations in the private sector. But because reservations in private sector could lead to a big question mark on investments and the growth of industry in our country, nobody has had the courage to get reservations into the private sector. This had broken that barrier of private sector and public sector 
and would have provided across the board opportunities to people. Sadly, and very tragically, it was not accepted. Perhaps an idea whose time hadn't come, or people failed to understand how remarkable that idea was and rejected it. Amongst all the things that government of India under UPA2 uh, and parliament was going to do to make India a more just society in terms of opportunity, this would have been the most remarkable instrument and approach to move forward. Unfortunately, we couldn't do that. Now, why do I talk about this? I talk about it because it leaves a huge gap in my understanding of what kind of politics India deserves, needs, and is yearning for. But unfortunately, we couldn't explain and, and make India understand that this is what they were yearning for. And unfortunately, we couldn't make that into a major public issue. So it died just a quiet, natural death. And I do hope one day somebody will revive it and will give people to understand that reservations are only a small section of what can be done to make society just and, and uh, inclusive and, and, and society that offers equal opportunity to everyone. I say this also not only because of the, the fact that we've lost this great opportunity, I say this also because it explains what is wrong with Indian politics. What is wrong with Indian politics is therefore uh, the understanding of Indian politics in broad terms of generality and unwillingness in Indian politics to proceed from that to some more subtle and some more, more implicit arrangements of equality and justice. So everybody thinks reservations means I have a job. If I belong to a particular community, I have a job. Somebody else then says, well, why don't you include my, my community in reservations as well? Since independence, not a single group has been excluded, despite the Commission's mandate being that where ample opportunity and ample reservations have come, please begin to exclude people. Not a single section, not a single group, not a single class has been excluded from reservations. But every year, new classes are being added to reservations. The Supreme Court had put an put a, a upper limit of 50%, but there are exceptions to those 50%. In some cases, coming from South India, from Tamil Nadu, and from, from Kerala, where the Supreme Court said that for the present we'll accept 70%, but we want an explanation of why it had to necessarily go to 70%, and then we will hear this matter again. It's been a few years, the matter hasn't been heard, but in a general proposition, 50% is kept as, as an upper ceiling. Now, there are demands in government in, and, and different parts of country where people are saying, break this 50%, bring a constitutional amendment, go pure, beyond 50%. And there are demands also saying that now include people who may not necessarily belong to a caste that is treated as a class that is backward, may well be a community and a caste that is otherwise not necessarily backward in terms of social attributes, but because of their economic conditions, they are backward. And this, such demands are coming from Rajasthan, they're coming from Uttar Pradesh, they're coming from Bihar. And uh, uh, Rajasthan has made two attempts to introduce legislation that 
then finally either gets withdrawn or gets struck down by the High Court. But this is the big challenge and the big question for future. Because we don't seem to, to discuss and, and debate in the country what justice about opportunity is and what equal opportunity is, we just believe that section that Article 14, Article 16 are essentially about a new system of opportunity that after the Constitution came into existence and was adopted, that new system of entitlement and opportunity that was introduced in order to offset and correct the, the aberrations of history. But to what extent that is happening, to what extent that will work, what extent that now has to be reversed or arrested, you, we hear stray voices, but what we don't hear is, is um, well-researched arguments that can convince us that it's time now for us to change things. Reservations at the initial stage when somebody is recruited has now been added, uh, to that has been added now the reservations in promotions and two reservations in promotions now has been added the right to retain your seniority in promotion. Supreme Court struck it down two or times, three times, four times. The matter now apparently has been has been mentioned before the, the Chief Justice for a larger bench to consider whether promotions, reservations, and uh, promotions in reservations, and seniority in promotions and reservations. Let me explain very quickly what seniority in promotions is, that where there is a reservation in, in say, at the first grade, there's a reservation and people enter in first grade in order to go to the second grade they again get the advantage of reservation, so they move faster than the other people. Even if the other people are senior to them, they move faster faster than those people to get into the second grade. In the second grade, when those people who are in the first grade catch up with them, should the first grade people coming up to the second grade now again become senior to them, or should those people who have come earlier retain their seniority? This is a big question that's, that's troubling uh, some people, and it's now possibly going to be examined by a larger constitutional bench in the court. I say this all because this is the nature <coughs> of politics that we are faced with in India today. And this is, this, this, these are fortunately uh, issues that are largely less provocative and less uh, uh, virulent uh, compared to the more recent issues that since 2014 have, have emerged in in, in the, uh, the political landscape of our country because religion has been brought in. These issues were about division amongst different sections of society based on caste that in law are treated as classes, but essentially and, and, and practically it's, it was castes. There is no, no uh, in class of Yadavs who get reservations for instance, there is no non-yadav. There is no way of identifying a class in India which is not a caste to begin with, despite the, courts, the Constitution saying and the courts saying repeatedly that caste is not the basis. It is the class that is basis. Because the class is a the basis, therefore people have argued that religion is not a basis, we understand, but people of a religion can also belong to a class and therefore in this entire backward, backward class controversy 
religious groups have also been brought in, to which there is obviously a reaction that we are now injecting religion into politics, into the politics of reservation. Having brought in caste into politics of reservation, we are now bringing religion into politics of reservation. This is the politics that is basically <coughs> at present hovering over the future and destiny of our country. That people are not talking, there are no debates in the country, there is no political education being provided by any political party and I plead guilty of my own party not, being, not doing adequate, adequate uh, effort, not putting in adequate effort to ensure that we educate our people. I think our historical perspective, how the great leaders of our national movement, Mahatma Gandhi, the great leaders of the Congress Party, great leaders of the Communist Party, went out to the electorate and educated them about fundamentals of justice. We've stopped doing that. We now just do cash and carry jobs in, in politics. What is something that can get me votes? Let me just say this is good. And as a result, when I say that we are all doing opposition politics now, is that we take a position that we think will get us votes. The other party opposes it because they think they will lose votes or they think by opposing they're going to get votes. They come to power, then they do exactly what we have been doing when we were in government. And when we are in opposition and they come to power to do that, then we start opposing it. It's happened with GST, it's happened with retail, it's happening with umpteen other things that there is opposition for opposition's sake because everything is converted into votes, everything is seen as a potential for number of votes that you can gather, and therefore when you're not in power, you want to oppose it. When you're out of power, you, you, uh, uh, when, when, when you are in power, you begin to support it. Ultimately, of course, depending on the numbers in Parliament, even your opposition gets fatigued, gets, uh, uh, gets diluted, and you finally give in. But you give in with a lot of screaming and a lot of shouting, finally give in and say that what is happening is anti-public, what is happening is anti-the uh, poor, what is happening is, is anti-disadvantaged. But what's do that done, unfortunately, is that it's given a very base quality of politics in our country. We never really are able to debate the truth and the intrinsic value of a position that we take. And therefore, politicians are becoming indistinguishable one from the other because they never seem to have clear positions on something that would remain consistent even when they lose office and they go to the other side. My friend Ramesh Jairam has, has described this in an, in an inimitable way when asked by, by somebody as to uh, what was the position of our party on a particular, particular matter and where we stood on that, on that matter. Uh, Jairam Ramesh in his inimitable style said, well, you stand where you sit. So if you sit on the right, you stand on the right. And if you sit on the left, you stand on the left. And if you switch from the left to the right, then you switch from standing from the left to standing on the right. Now, that's the kind of politics, I'm afraid, that is destroying our country. We are on the cusp of a huge <coughs> leap in the world. The world recognizes India and must recognize India because of our size, because of our accomplishment, because of our history, because of our offer to the world, because of what we have done for peace in the world, what we have done for economics in the world, and for the physical strength that we have. A physical strength that we have in military terms, 
in the physical, the, the spiritual strength that we have and what we offer to the world in terms of, of a vision of future and ultimately the, the, the stunning, important market that we offer to the world. A world that is in, in, in great difficulty about finding, fi finding markets for its product today looks at China and India as the two great, great markets that, that they are offered and therefore India will for the next 10 years, 20 years remain a very attractive partner to anybody in the world. However, will that last and will it be permanent and will it, can it be sustained is the big question. Now while we are, while we are uh, unable to answer many of the problems that I have just described, let's look at the new problems that are, that are coming, that are being faced by our country. The big problem of jobs. We are producing now, there, are, there were no colleges and schools in the past today. They are the best universities, they are schools, they are colleges. <coughs> Education is now, uh, is, is, is now spreading, spreading uh, exponentially, but there are no jobs to offer to people. Where are they going for to go to go, go to jobs? People from the rural areas, are, after getting educated, don't want to go back to their little farms. They want to come to the cities. So cities are getting congested. There are no jobs. And that means the frustration level in our country continues to rise. Now we, from one party in the opposition, will say the government is incapable of giving jobs and the government is therefore a government that deserves to be thrown out. And the moment we get into power, we can't get jobs. So that, so that party con continues to say that we have lied and we have misled the, part, misled the country and therefore uh, uh, we should then be thrown out. Now you can't have a cycle of government being thrown out because ca they can't give jobs. Then government being thrown out because they can't, give, they can't give security. Now security is of all kinds. Security is against, against uh, disruption, disruption of ordinary civil amenities, security of the kind that we, have to, we are faced with on the border, security of the kind that we have to, we have to suffer the hands of, of insurgents of Naxalite security of the kind we now suffer now suffer in the streets of the country where people because of a disagreement can can be lynched disagreement on the kind of food you eat the language you speak uh, a disagreement about the way you treat women a disagreement about how a woman expects to be treated on these matters we are now ending up in very serious condition of expanding crime and then again comes the issue of policing. And we find that policing has become so intrinsically linked with politics that you can't get objective policing. The kind of policing I believe that you are accustomed to seeing in this country is not the kind of policing that you get to see in our country. There have been Supreme Court judgments saying police has to be objective. Police has to be, has to be at an arm's distance from what happens in, uh, uh, what, what happens in politics. But we see every day, we see every day, something that we see now, every passing hour, we see how the police, despite all Supreme Court judgments, is used by political <coughs> forces. And I'm again saying, I'm not blaming any one particular party, but I'm saying that police is used and misused constantly by people in power. How do we, how do we deal with that? How will you deal where you have, you have shortage of jobs, how will you deal with this? No security, how will you deal when you have, you have nothing, uh, nothing that you can expect from the police and the greatest fear of any person is to go to a police station to report that something wrong has happened. Yes. And the last 
the last bastion, as it were, for democratic assistance to you and, and for faith is the judiciary. And now, what do we get? We get four judges, senior judges of the judiciary, coming out and speaking to the press and saying there is something terribly wrong. We don't know what's wrong. I practice in that court. I don't know what's wrong. I mean, I can say that one judge is unhappy about not being able to hear the big cases, another judge is unhappy about what one judge has done to another case, etc. But it got, it's got to be something deeper for four judges to come out and say that there is something rotten in the state of Denmark. Mm -hmm. Now, we don't know what's happened. We don't know how bad it, how bad it is. We see periodically, we hear, we hear from the press that judges have come together to talk to the Chief Justice, but then we are told nothing has happened. There are 500, over 500 vacant positions of High Court judges in India. When people have to wait 20 years, 30 years to get simple cases decided by courts, there are 500 judges that we cannot agree upon and 500 judges' positions remain vacant. So the very judiciary that we are proud of, the very legal system that we are proud of, and the very legal system we sell in contradiction to what the Chinese system offers to say that we as a common law country, we as an English-speaking judicial system that we have in this country, we with separation of powers can provide greater comfort to anyone who is coming to invest in India. We know the truth, unfortunately, is not quite that. The truth is that there is something terrible and something terrible, terribly wrong that needs to be corrected. How do we correct it? What are we going to do about correcting it? This larger debate in India never happens. Politics in a democracy is about such a debate. Politics in a democracy is about people offering different options. Politics in a democracy is about choosing between different options. Politics in a democracy is about rejecting options that haven't worked and picking up fresh options, not simply change your faces from one person to another person. That is the big question in India today. The big question in India today is, what is it that you voted for in 2014? What is it that you voted for <coughs> before 2014? What will you vote for after 2014? The big question is, our largest electorate in our country is people below, below the age of 45 or below the age of 35. It's the young people, a young country, that decides its future. And it decides its future on what? Decides its future on the basis of an election campaign in which, in which people who you do not even know properly get elected, people who you do not even want get elected, and then you have, you have one face as a prime minister in whom you have to put all your faith. The prime minister alone can't run a country. The country has to run at every level. Whether it's a great prime minister or it's an ordinary prime minister, whether it's a prime minister for a few years or a prime minister for a very long time, unless the country structure supports a prime minister, unless the country structure is such that you can see the prime minister's directions being executed and being implemented, you can't really get anywhere. And that's the big problem today. The big problem today is that people with 30% vote begin to believe that India is run by them. Whereas 30% of vote may well be, well be uh, an example where 70% of people have actually voted against you. So should India think, think seriously about proportional representation? 
Should India say, think seriously about first past the post as against proportional representation? Should India think about, about proportional representation and a list system where you vote for a whole list and you vote for a whole party rather than vote for a candidate out of compulsion despite believing that that can't candidate to be very bad? Should you be voting for somebody because of his caste or should you be voting for somebody because of his money? Or should you be voting for somebody because of his muscle power? Or should you be voting for a person because there is a philosophical, political thought that supports the, uh, the platform, uh, platform that that person stands on? And that platform offers you something of hope. I believe India today, despite whatever has happened in the past few years, is a country that is screaming for a serious, fresh look at how we conduct ourselves in politics. India is demanding that we stop being uh, politics of opposition and start moving towards becoming politics of governance and true governance. <coughs> India must today genuinely believe what freedom is all about. Saying in the Supreme Court, ultimate, any number of judgments that say that you have a right to liberty, you have a right to freedom, one of the finest judgments that has come in the Supreme Court in recent times is a judgment on privacy. Take mm -hmm. it from me. That I think that it's a judgment that has made a monumental leap mm -hmm. in how, how we can think about the law. But if after that judgment being pronounced, you still get have a policeman pick up somebody on the slightest excuse and lock that person up and that person not get bailed for a week or for a month or for six months, then what is that judgment worth? A big question. I believe that judgment, while it offers, I, I believe philosophically, the finest thought that we may have ever heard from the Supreme Court is also a judgment <coughs> that will throw up the most enormous challenges for how we govern our country. And if we don't commit ourselves to facing those challenges in the true spirit of this judgment, and this judgment will be a piece of paper. This is a broad spectrum. I will want you to ask me questions. And I believe an interactive, interactive uh, session would be more useful in understanding a very complicated situation in a, in, a, in a very, very delicate moment in the life of our country. But the fact that you're here gives me hope, gives me, gives me a sense of faith that there are a lot of young people who believe that India will change and that India will progress and that India will come out of its present morass. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you. Can I just sit? Oh, yeah. Thank you. Uh, I, should, uh, I should say quickly that for those who don't know me, I teach history and uh, political ideas at uh, Cambridge. And uh, I'm sort of, as, how do I put it? I have a deep respect for politicians. Uh, this, I mean, you know, this is, uh, I, I sort of you know, go against the current grain where politicians have become, as it were, uh, the punching bag of, of, uh, of, uh, you know, uh, of public discourse, whether it's America, whether it's England, uh, or indeed uh, India. So it is with that sense of respect that I would like to engage with you. Uh, and I think 
Uh, I think uh, there are a couple of things that I would like to raise. I think uh, you asked the right question, which was about uh, the rights enhancement and the entitlement en enhancement that the UPA government gave to India. I mean, after, as it were, 1947, after 1950, this was a big watershed in terms of right to information, right to food, right to education. And the multi-million dollar question was that why then did, did this not convert itself into a political majority? And why wasn't it voted back for what was actually a deeply ambitious and I think far-reaching program? I mean, there were other problems uh, going on there. And I think your, um, your emphasis on reservation is both correct, uh, but also slightly mistaken because uh, 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 when, if you look at the founding uh, f figures uh, of the Indian Constitution, and you're a great eminent expert of, uh, of the law, and not just of, of politics, uh, the, the way in which, in a way, Ambedkar instituted the question of reservation was actually to, to in a way, decenter the question of what a majority is. So for instance, we know elections are won on a majority. And his argument uh, right after uh, after the formation of Pakistan, but also at the height of those debates was that once you recognize a minority, what you've actually done is recognized uh, without knowing by default a majority. And so therefore his agenda was actually to institute a, a, a kind of decenter this kind of unity that might, uh, might, underlie fantasy, might underlie, as it were, fantasies of whether the Hindu Mahasabha or the RSS, but he recognized that this was what was at stake ultimately in the future of India. And therefore, caste had to be entered right into that debate on what constitutes a majority. And I think we can go clearly, we see, as it were, that clear outcome of this, how, does it, how did this play out electorally? It didn't play out electorally in the 50s or 60s or 70s or even 80s. It took 1991, 92, uh, when, as it were, the caste uh, and the, the religion question, the Babri Masjid uh, issue and the OBC issue that was mentioned came to a head. And in a way, you know, in a way, the Hindutva aspiration had to wait another, another 10 years to actually acquire electoral majority. And I think this was a very kind of, I think it was a very sound move on Ambedkar's part, not only to, as it were, say that you cannot rely on the goodwill of superiors to give you an entitlement or justice, but you might, you have to institutionalize certain uh, mechanisms which allow for fair play. Uh, and, and so in a way, I, I'm, I'm a believer in, in the reservation game, uh, which might be, uh, you know, uh, which might sort of sound counterintuitive, especially to the to the young here. But I think it goes, it it, it allows for uh, for uh, as it were uh, a debate within, or, or it allows for a difficult decision or a conversion of the Hindu majority of India into a political majority, into an automatic political majority. Okay, so this is what has been at stake for the last 60, 70 years. Ambedkar was entirely candid about it. And, and, and I think we have to kind of recognize this. But what has happened in the last 20 years, and I think, as we know, as a historian, as political commentators would know, the early 1990s or that moment of the three M's of Mandal, uh, Masjid, and Market coming together was pr what produced the second democratic upsurge of India, which is to say a new kind of person emerged in the political uh, class, new kinds of people entered the, entered the electoral uh, landscape. 
I, I would, I'm not a sophologist. I'm, I don't actually um, you know, go by numbers too much to understand political trends. But I do see that there is something going on. In a, a, a big social change is going on in India in the last 20 years. For one, I would hesitate uh, to, as it were, call an end to OVC politics. But I actually think it has peaked. The Mandal logic has peaked. But what you are therefore getting is a sense of uh, new, uh, new social groups which are coming up who are being more assertive. Here I think I'm thinking of Dalit groups. I'm also thinking of student pa uh, parties. I'm also thinking of various other youth uh, movements going on, including gender issues, which are quite inchoate, but they repeat a pattern across campuses. Or if you think about other mass movements, like uh, the one in Assam by Akhil Gogoi. So you have, in a way, a, 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 a kind of a social churning going on under the debate of what has taken place with, with Hindutma. And in a way, I think this is going to be the greatest challenge also for the BJP, because it, it, has, it may have broken the logic of caste in, the, in 2014 when Dalits for the first time voted uh, for, 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 him, for Hindu nationalist uh, parties. Uh, but I think it, has, it is now caught on the back foot, not just in terms of jobless growth, not just in terms of restiveness amongst the youth, but it is unable to now capture what has happened with, with, these, with these social changes. And there's a huge amount of social restiveness going on in India, which is, which is seeking actually a political articulation. Right. I mean, I think you're quite right that there is there is there is there is a kind of uh, there is a kind of need uh, for it. So one will see what uh, I think. Uh, I, so therefore, my point of disagreement, uh, 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 my humble point of disagreement, would be that yeah, uh, that actually uh, we don't have just one kind of politics in India. Uh, we we actually have very uh, we have a huge contest of ideas. We have huge contest of as it were social groups going on. And I therefore don't think, though of course there are certain ways in which certain political, uh, a certain kind of political establishment replaces itself. But I think that we are seeing a, a breakthrough even in that, whether AAP was a success or not, whether one supports it or not, that in a way showed that you could even change that establishment question very, uh, very, very, uh, very, very quickly. The question on, uh, so, uh, so in a way, uh, what is also intriguing, as a historian, I'm very intrigued that uh, uh, since 1931, we have not had a caste census. We had a caste census in 2011, but we do not have the data. It has not been made public. We should ask ourselves, why? Why not? Right? Why don't we have this very, very, uh, because indeed, uh, uh, caste is a form of entitlement uh, in India. Uh, uh, whether we are aware of it, whether we check our privilege or or, or, or not, uh, but it, it it is it is a historic uh, entitlement, and in a way, what we are seeing <laughs> is a kind of a shakeup uh, in caste politics in India, where in a way, initially the OBC had kind of captured. Uh, the landscape in the 90s and, and the 2000s. But today, whether it is Mevani, whether it is various other figures who are coming to, as it were, question, to place the Dalit question more centrally, more politically, uh, politically in India. And I think we will see many such other movements, whether it is, uh, whether it is, uh, whether it is women. I'm, I'm not sure about uh, the Muslim question here. But the other thing that has, this has led to is that the old style of peasant, peasant leader has also exhausted itself. Uh, so we will see a new kind of figure 
emerging, whether, I mean, I, I return to Mevani, uh, but Mevani is an, is an interesting example, or Akhil Gogoi is an interesting example. There are these kinds of figures uh, on the Indian landscape who are challenging, as it were, the established set of uh, politics. And, and in a way, um, I, I don't want to think uh, uh, for what what the challenge for Hindutva might be, but it 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 uh, the the challenge exactly is that it has focused too much on the cultural question, on cultural nationalism, and it has not paid attention to the social change that has gone on in the last 20 years. And it will pay for it because because up until now it has managed to polarize uh, polarize debate and uh, and has it were as it were circumvented the social uh, question. So I suppose. Um, uh, the last point I would like to, to make uh, is, is that, uh, yes, uh, in a way, the court, the Supreme Court has, in a way, become that place which is, uh, which is in a way, uh, questioning the role of politics. It, you know, it has, I mean, I, I'm not sure whether, um, of course, in, uh, in the liberal press uh, and in, in, in general, it is seen to be a force <laughs> for the good. Uh, but there is also a debate of what does the court really represent, right? This is, this is the debate we saw with the judicial appointment uh, uh, fiasco or, or non-fiasco, like who gets to appoint uh, uh, the judges. And this is the same problem that the American, uh, most mass democracies are facing this, this question. So where does, in a way, change come from? I think in India, the clear answer is that if you want change, you need political power. It is not going to come from structures of governance. It is also not going to come from the court. The court is only going to be able to, to direct things, which is why elections are at such a high premium in India, which is both good and bad. It has reduced democracy to just mere elections, but it, is, it, has, it has also, on a more positive note, uh, uh, enfranchised a large number of social groups which 50 years ago did, could not smell power. So if they now want to change their collective lot, they need to, in a way, they organize, they win elections, they, they are there. I mean, just, you know, just flick through the, the kind of cabinets that we had 30 years ago to the kind of cabinets we have today. A very ki different kind of political leader exists for both good or for bad. So I think uh, we need to ask um, not just simply the question of governance, which I th take uh, is, is actually very, very serious, but really, uh, 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 you know, why and how has politics come to determine, make such, a, um, such an important role in India? Why is it that if you want change, the only way out for you is to join politics? So this is where I leave it. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you.